Greetings and welcome to the Asian American and Asian Research Institute's final lecture series online edition. I'm Anthony Wong, program coordinator of the Institute. And I want to thank you everyone for joining us tonight for our first lecture of the spring semester on Kulintang Kultura, Dananggan Kalanduyan and Gang Music of the Philippine Diaspora with our speakers, Theo Gonzalez and Mary Tolusun Lakalanle. Uh, the album that they co-produced through the Smithsonian Folkways recordings pays homage to the late Danny Kalanduyan, a talented musician and generous teacher who championed traditional Filipino uh, Kulintan Gang music in the United States. Theo S. Uh, Gonzalez is a scholar of comparative uh, cultural studies focusing on the experiences of Asian American and Filipino American communities. Uh, Theo is the curator of the Asian Pacific American history at Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of American History. Uh, his publications include Stage Presence, uh, Conversations with Filipino-American Performing Artists, The Day the Dancer Stayed, Performing in the Filipino and American Diaspora, uh, Carlos Vila and the Integrity of Spaces, and Filipinos in Hawaii. Uh, Theo was Associate Professor of American Studies at the University of Hawaii at Manoa and the University of Maryland, Baltimore County and also a past president of the Association for Asian American Studies. Uh, Mary Talusa-Lakalande is assistant professor of Asian Pacific Studies at California State University, Dominguez Hills. She's the author of Instruments of Empire, Filipino Musicians, Black Soldiers, and Military Band Music during the U.S. Colonization of the Philippines, uh, released in fall 2021. And she presented on her book back at, for Ari, and her talk is available online to view on our website and YouTube page uh, after this talk. So please enjoy that. And Mary is also co-editor of Our Culture Response, Our Future Reveals, A Legacy of Filipino-American Performing Arts in California. And in addition to her teaching, she also enjoys performing for the Pakaraguian uh, Kulintang uh, Ensemble. Uh, please welcome Theo Gonzalez and Mary Tulusan Lukalande. Thank you for that introduction. And on, beh on behalf of Mary, I just want to say how much we uh, really appreciate being able to uh, present our work in front of the Asian American and Asian Research Institute at CUNY. Uh, it's a great honor to be with you folks tonight, and we're uh, happy to share with you the details of this new album that we co-produced. The subject of, of our talk today concerns the release of this brand new album that Mary Tulusan Lakanlali and I co-produced for Smithsonian Folkways Recordings. Um, it's called Kulintang Kultura, uh, Danny Kalanduing and Gong Music of the Philippine Diaspora. I think as many people will realize, uh, an album that features Danny's work has, um, it, it's long overdue and we'll, we'll get a chance to talk about some of the reasons uh, why it's so important to have uh, this music preserved uh, and shared with a very wide platform. Uh, the music originates from the Southern Philippines, and I'm sure Mary will be able to, to talk more about this as well. What I want to do is to spend a few minutes just to talk about the, the label um, and how this particular album is situated within the larger label of Smithsonian Folkways Recordings. So Smithsonian Folkways Recordings is the, is the nonprofit record label of the Smithsonian Institution. So the label was founded in 1987, and it has thousands of recordings that represent so many different kinds of genres, not just American uh, music or, um, or musics of the Americas, but really music from around the world. And it's really been a global leader in thinking about music education, music pedagogy, music history. So if you haven't already uh, taken a look over at the website, I, I'd encourage you to do so. And I'll, I'll put the um, uh, uh, link in the chat in a little bit. 
Um, <clears throat> but we'll, we'll talk about Smithsonian Folkways recordings. And let's, let's think about then um, some of the albums pertaining to the Philippines that are already on the label. So going as far back as the 1950s or so, there actually have been um, ethnomusicologists uh, and other anthropologists who've been studying music of the Philippines. Um, and over the years, music of the Philippines has been fairly well represented um, in, um, in Smithsonian Folkways recordings. Um, <clears throat> as late as 1976, though, you'll see that there's um, an album in the lower lower right of the screen. Uh, it's called Philippines Bangon Arise. This was uh, released in 1976 by Filipino and Filipino-American activists who were very much um, involved in mass-based social movements of that time, especially organizing around anti-martial law. Uh, but for several decades, the, the idea of Philippine traditional music has been represented in the label, but um, not as much as you would think uh, over the intervening years. Uh, clearly, there's been quite a lot of representation on the label with the Bayanihan Philippine Dance Company, which was, it's been the national dance company of the Philippines since the late 1950s, uh, especially with these albums that appeared on the monitor label. So Smithsonian Folkways Recordings is a, a major label that has acquired several other labels along the way. That's the reason why we have um, seven LPs from the Bainihan. Just a couple of years ago, the label decided to put together an Asian Pacific America series. So here was an attempt by a couple of curators and myself to, to consider what is what are the various um, music cultures that represent Asian America and the Asian American and Pacific Islander diaspora. So we have here five albums that were created within the last uh, probably two or three years. Um, and so starting from top to bottom, left to right, <clears throat> Sonny Jane, who's the um, percussionist and leader of a group called Red Barat. Many of you will probably know Nobuko Miyamoto, who was um, part of the, uh, the group that gave us a, a grain of sand in 1973. That's also on the Footways LP. Most recent album here is a double album, a fantastic one called 120,000 Stories. A group called Nono Boy, which is led by Julian Saporiti, who was... Um, I think he actually he's finishing up his PhD in American studies at Brown University, and he decided to turn his um, his personal history into the 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 substance for his dissertation. Um, and he actually has hundreds of songs. And we decided to to approach him to see if he'd he'd cull uh, that very large catalog of storytelling and music into a, a unique uh, album that uh, that represents his personal history. Um, we also have um, another album that focuses on uh, music that was created for a 2009 production of the dancers and musicians of the Cambodian Buddhist Society of uh, Silver Spring, Maryland. Then, of course, we have the fifth album that we'll be talking about, which is Kalimtang Kultura. So these five albums represent um, uh, the most contemporary look uh, and commitment by the Smithsonian Folkways recordings to document and share Asian Pacific American music cultures. So we'll get into this. Uh, why this particular album um, and why Kulintang Kultura? Um, this has to do with a, a couple of reasons. And, and I'm sure um, Mary also has, has been wondering why there hasn't been an album focused on Danny. Uh, there actually has been. It was There was an independent release that was uh, uh, produced several years ago. But we had uh, here on the mall in San Francisco, I mean, in, in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, pardon me, the Folklife Festival, which takes place in July of every year. And um, several years ago, in 2017, we had several National Heritage Fellows that were performing 
or if they weren't performing, they had their albums released as part of the Folkways uh, Festival. And yet <clears throat> an album wasn't available for Danny Kalanduyan, who himself was a National Heritage Fellow um, going back to 1995. So it, it, it kind of raised the question for me is so why why don't we have an album that can be shared uh by the smithsonian folkways recordings and so i had decided to approach the deputy label manager and the label director at the time uh to see if they would be open to such um an album they agreed and they actually liked the idea of thinking not only about danny and his work and this is with the palabunia and kuntang ensemble in san francisco um in, in which they're presented in a in a traditional uh, Philippine repertoire, but they also like the idea of presenting Kulintang for another brand new audience, who uh, in, in, and represented by different artists who also would take the music into different genres. And so, what we have is actually a two album set that focuses on this music. The first disc, of course, deals with uh, Kalanduyan and the Palabunian Kulintang ensemble, um, but the second album or the second CD, I should say has 13 tracks of various genres. Uh, and so we have folks like Han Han from uh, Toronto, Ron Quesada of Kulintranica, uh, Jinji out of Los Angeles. Uh, in the 1980s, there was a, a beautiful recording by Fred Ho and Kulintang Arts. Uh, again, left to right, top to bottom, Bo Razon. Um, in the black and white, you have that, uh, that quintet there called the No Buddies, N-O-H Buddies featuring Robert Kikuchi and Goho. Lower left, you have uh, a group called Asian Crisis. And again, Danny would show up on the, on the second disc uh, in, different, uh, in different groups. This is a group called the Subla Neo Kulintang um, Ensemble. Other artists featured on the second disc would include Royal Hardigan, a percussionist. Um, in a rock track, uh, actually a heavy metal track, there's uh, Eleanor Academia and guitarist and composer Florente Algalar. Closing out that second CD, we have Bernard uh, Lauren. And then we also have, uh, I think, a fitting way to close out the album, uh, Kim Galantian, who is Danny's granddaughter. So we come full circle in terms of thinking about how the genre continues to inspire and branch out into jazz, folk, rock, ambient, dance, and then also in other versions of, of what's available to us. So I'd like at this time to hand it over to Mary, um, because uh, I was, what was clear was that uh, what I wanted to be able to, to do with this album was to make sure that there was also some solid uh, academic work behind it, um, and, it, and it reflected the current scholarship in ethnomusicology. Uh, and so I, I couldn't think of anyone better other than Mary Talusan Lakanlali, who is um, uh, a, a great academic, but then also um, a wonderful player as well. Uh, she's responsible for writing a, a wonderful set of liner notes inside the book, um, so if, if you uh, get the album, then you'll see some some excellent notes that have been produced by her and really a detailed um, a detailed look at each of the tracks as well. So I'd like to hand it over to Mary, who will talk about the rest of the album at this point. Go ahead, Mary. Great. Thank you so much, Theo. And um, thank you so much, um, Asian American Asian Research Institute, for having me on again. Um, as we mentioned, I talked about uh, my book, Instruments of Empire, last semester, but I'm so happy to be here with you again and to talk about uh, this project, um, which was really a labor of love and I think really represents uh, the Filipino-American experience 
in both connecting to the homeland traditions, but also in moving that forward by um, using this traditional music in a way that expresses our experience as uh, Asian Americans and Filipino Americans. Um, Theo, if I could have you kind of uh, move, go back to the slide of the map, I'd like to just give you a short introduction um, to Kuling Tong music, where it comes from, uh, the culture that produced it. Now, Kuling Tong music is um, part of the traditions of the Southern Philippines. And if you've ever gone to a uh, Filipino cultural show, you'll notice that many of the folk dances that we do are very diverse. And I bring this up because this is where a lot of Filipino Americans and other audiences um, get their first taste of Kulintang music. So um, again, if you've ever been to one of those Filipino cultural shows, the music and dances of a place called Mindanao in the southern Philippines, that's that um, southernmost island there that's highlighted for you, uh, that particular island uh, never came under Spanish colonization. So for um, 300 years, they fought off the Spanish uh, and retained some pre-colonial traditions that I think are very important to Filipino Americans when we're uh, attempting to um, express some of our Southeast Asian roots and our connections to traditions that were there thousands of years before uh, colonization. So Mindanao um, has some ties to Malaysia, to Indonesia. Uh, they were Islamized in the uh, uh, 12 and 1300s. And as I said, fought off the Spanish for over 300 years. So Kulintang is part of this uh, big Southeast Asian tradition that has to do with bronze gongs. So bronze gongs came to Southeast Asia by way of trade um, with China. But Southeast Asians did something really unique to it, which is to add this knob in the center of the gongs. Now, if you have... Um, the album cover, and uh, Theo, we can, um, we'll scroll to it in a little bit. The album cover will show you the cooling tong instrument. And as I said, these knobs on the top of these bronze gongs give it that really precise tuning. So um, cooling tong is related to Southeast Asian traditions like gamelan from uh, Indonesia, or Kulintangan um, from Borneo and parts of Malaysia. So uh, it really connects to these much deeper roots um, of a Southeast Asian identity. Now, how the heck did it come to the United States? Well, this is really by way of uh, Danongan Kalanduyan, who I'll refer to as Guru Danny because I was friends with him for a couple of decades before he passed away, sadly, and I, uh, um, refer to him as Guru or Teacher Danny. So Guru Danny um, in uh, 1973 came to the United States along with another uh, Muslim Filipino colleague, Usapai Kadar. They both went to the University of Washington, uh, brought there by Robert Garfius, who's a, another esteemed ethnomusicologist. And they, um, came straight from the island of Mindanao and uh, 
at the University of Washington, Seattle, had a really dedicated group of students that they taught uh, traditional Kulintang music. And uh, after writing their dissertation and master's thesis, thesis um, they stayed in the United States um, since uh, the early 70s into the 80s and 90s when I met them uh, and taught scores of really, really dedicated students. Most of them were Filipino American, but some of them uh, were uh, other Americans who just were drawn to this music. Uh, the sound of Kulintang music, um, I can only describe it as really um, magical and transformative and certainly very attractive to Filipinos, Americans like myself, who were kind of longing for um, musical traditions that um, predated uh, Spanish colonization. Um, so when I first met uh, Guru Dani in 1999, he was doing a concert at UCLA and other parts of Southern California. Uh, and I was just so captivated by this music and to know culture bearers like uh, Danong and Kalanduyan, who were just dedicated to teaching this to Filipino Americans. For uh, Goro Dani, this music wasn't just sort of aesthetically pleasing and um, something to be added to folk dances, but it was really an art form in itself. And I say that because I still consider myself a student of Kulintang music. I'm always learning um, about it. I'm learning new things. Um, and I think I will just be a lifelong learner. I would never call myself a master of Kulintang music. But I'd um, like uh, for you to hear a little bit of what it sounds like. And so, um, Theo, if you could um, play a short video for us. This is Pakaragian Kulintang Ensemble. I am part of this group, along with other members who studied directly with Danny Kalanduyan, uh, particularly Dr. Bernard Ellerin, who's seated there in the photo in the middle. Um, he studied with um, Guru Danny since the age of um, 10. I think 10 is a, a, uh, correct. And also Eleanor Lipa Chesler, who also studied with Guru Danny. We all did this separately uh, because Danny would go um, around to different cities in the United States, San Diego, New York, uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and, and teach um, Filipino Americans, uh, particularly, but also other people, uh, this particular tradition. So he always emphasized that this isn't just about the music, but it really is about connecting Filipino Americans to their diverse cultural heritage in the Philippines. So uh, Theo, please go ahead and play the example. Thank you. Um, that young man playing Cooling Tongue is actually a student of Dr. Bernard Ellurin's. So we are actively not just performing this music, but also teaching it to the 
the next generation. Okay, fine, he's my son too. But he doesn't study with me because uh, he prefers to study with Bernard. Um, but anyways, going back to um, the importance of um, Guru Danny as a cultural figure in the United States is really important. He was the first Filipino American to be awarded the uh, National Endowment for the Arts National Heritage uh, Fellow um, Award in 1988. And just very recently, the second Filipino American to be awarded this, um, to be the recipient of this award was Tagumpay de Leon, um, just in 2021, who is a performer of Rondalia music. Um, so for a long time, uh, Danongan Kalanduyan, before he passed away in 2016, um, was really the master of all of us Kulintang students, as I said, traveled to different cities, and not only taught, but gave workshops, um, performed, and really spread the culture of Kulintang music around to different um, different areas and different students. And I think that the second album that Theo talked about really represents his success as not only a teacher, but to inspire uh, Filipino American musicians and artists to take this music into different directions. Um, so the question is though, uh, with the innovations that Kulintang music takes, Guru Danny, on the one hand, was very traditional in the sense that he did want us to learn uh, Kulintang music um, properly um, so that we would learn it um, orally. In fact, he disliked the use of written music because he thought we should learn it the traditional way. So to do this, he would play for us. We would try to absorb the different melodies and the rhythms. And eventually we would add our own uh, improvisations to it. So he really emphasized learning it traditionally. But he also encouraged um, Filipino American artists to take it into new directions. In fact, uh, I think as Theo mentioned, Guru Danny himself is on several pieces on that second album uh, because he did innovate. He did join um, world music ensembles um, to add cooling tong to the, the conversation, the discussion, the expression of um, contemporary musics. Um, so I think he would be really proud of this CD that we co-produced um, honoring him, but also on the second CD, honoring his legacy and what he has taught to Filipino Americans. Um, so, but he also thought about uh, the way that Filipino Americans currently understood Kulintang music, which is in a lot of folk dances. So those uh, Filipino or Filipino cultural nights that I was talking about that are found on almost every UC and CSU campus and definitely um, in on other college and university campuses around the country. Um, they can't all hire a cooling tongue ensemble, right? And so what he did on the first CD was to put several tracks that um, that student groups can play to accompany their music. I'm sorry, their dances. Um, 
Now, some groups do have Kulintang music, but because they lacked access to traditional teachers, they would often um, kind of play the sounds of Kulintang without really learning like the repertoire. And so in this way, um, by including those tracks that uh, people can use during their cultural shows, uh, he hoped to spread uh, the sound of what that music would sound like in his homeland. So not just, you know, banging on the gong, so to speak, but really using the music that would be found to accompany those cultural dances um, that, that would be understood and heard by the Migindanao. Now, uh, Theo and I will discuss this in a bit, but Kulintang music is what we call a living tradition. A living tradition, um, and even though it is an indigenous tradition, a traditional tradition, that doesn't mean that it's frozen in time. In fact, it always evolves. Um, if you buy the liner, the CD and read the liner notes, I talk about how Kulintang music traditionally was actually mostly and only played by women until about the 1950s. Um, men, you know, would be off working, fishing, um, farming, and so on. And the women at home had this music to entertain themselves, entertain the children, but also to communicate. Um, there are these four large hanging gongs called gandingan. And before cell phones, obviously, they would send short musical messages to each other. <clears throat> so um, some women would say, I'm here, I'm waiting for you, um, you know, come over, or please come, I have something to tell you. But these gandingan were also used in courtship. So maybe a man might play um, a flirtatious musical message, such as light last night I dreamt of you. And uh, he would target a particular uh, young lady to send that message to. Um, and in community celebrations, when uh, people from all around the different villages would get together, uh, they would, young people would come together and play this music. And so those are moments where, you know, uh, being young and unmarried, they would flirt uh, to flirt with each other using the Kulintang instruments. So in about 1950, Kulintang music um, actually got some ethnomusicological attention. Um, Jose Maceda wrote the first dissertation on Philippine music um, in ethnomusicology. He went to UCLA and his dissertation was on the Maguindanao. And so I think my theory is that this sparked some renewed interest in this music and you got more and more men playing it in the 1950s. Now they invented a faster style of playing, not one that was focused on the melody of the instrument, but really on the rhythms. So they they had been playing the, the drum called the bakan or the agung, which are these really fat, big hanging gongs. And they took those rhythms and incorporated it into the Kulintang melody. And so it innovated sort of a faster style. Um, the last time I went to Cotabato City in Mindanao, I um, did my dissertation research with Guru Dani's family. The young people they there play even faster. It's almost like a sport. Um, and with Agung, the, the large hanging gong, uh, competitions, they add like a third gong. So I know that 
Kuling Tong music continues to evolve and is really this rich living tradition um, in its homeland of Mindanao. And it has evolved in the United States as uh, we have um, featured on the second CD with Filipino American artists, world music artists incorporating it into their own styles. So I think this really um, represents, you know, the globalization of Kuling Tong music and particularly how um, Americans, uh, Filipino Americans in the Philippine diaspora um, have taken it into new directions. Um, so I will pause there and uh, perhaps Theo can take us into a deeper dive into the, the second CD, or sorry, I didn't mean to tell you what to say next, but I'll hand it back over to Theo. That's fine. That's great. Uh, thank you, Marion. Um, that's wonderful. And as you could tell, audience, um, there, there's a reason why Mary is on this project, because uh, uh, she represents a, a lot of deep knowledge that, that needs to be communicated. Um, there are audiences that, um, uh, that are encountering this music for the first time. And even for folks that might be aware of other Asian musical traditions, like, for example, the gamelan, um, it really, if you've studied gamelan for a long time, you, you're, you're going to be coming to this, this music of Kulintang um, as a novice, because there's still a lot of information to be able to, to convey. So I'm, I'm glad we're getting a chance to talk about this, because the second CD is just as complex, I think, as the first. And, and what it does represent is another set of adaptations and uh, experimentation and explorations. And that's precisely how culture and, and music lives out. Um, it, it is, it, it is exactly as Mary has, has talked about, uh, when music is alive and when the cultures are alive, um, then the, the statements that people imbue with it, um, contain a lot of uh, interesting and, and, and beautiful connections that, that can be made. So it's not just, um, musical statements in the United States, but then also, uh, in Canada. And so the, the second CD actually opens with um, a Canadian artist by the name of Han Han in Toronto. And so we'll, we'll uh, share with you a, a short clip uh, from this uh, artist. Her name is Han Han, and, and she's accompanied by uh, Datu, which is a duo as well. Um, and this is a, a track called World Gone Crazy. We'll just play a little bit of this. gives you a kind of sense of the flavor of what's going on there. It also selected this track because she's not only rapping in Tagalog, but then also in Cebuano, which is also a rarity in itself. So when we think about this Filipino diaspora, we have to, um, it, it makes sense for us to think about what's also happening just across uh, this artificial border uh, in, in Toronto uh, and to see the development of, of um, these cultural heritages and these inheritances 
um, that are being played out by Filipino Canadians as well. So um, I hope you get a chance to really dig into to the album. Um, and um, and, if, and if you folks are interested in, in learning more about the label as well as the release, um, I'd, I'd uh, direct you over to the following URL and it's folkways, F-O-L-K-W-A-Y-S dot S-I dot E-D-U. Um, and we'd love to get uh, your uh, questions and, and, um, and comments as we conclude this part of the presentation. But we'd love to be in dialogue with you um, about this and, and, um, and to hear from you as well. So thank you for joining us. How long did this project take the both of you to uh, complete from conception till you know, the release last year? That's a good question. Um, so Anthony, um, I originally made this pitch to the label directors at Smithsonian Folkways Recordings in 2018. Uh, so it was finally released in, in 2021 fall. Um, Folkways is a great place to work, uh, with just because their, their label has, uh, is, um, is its own little machine. And so they, they put out, uh, a number of albums during the year. Uh, and it became, um, it became clear that, that, uh, this was going to be one of the, um, uh, you know, one of, um, several albums that are going to be released. Uh, on this venerated album. So I would say it, it took, um, that long, about, uh, three years to get it done. And, and I asked Mary to join, uh, once we finally had a, a contract and a, a sense of, um, uh, of the shape of the album, um, just in terms of a two part situation, you know, a, a two disc package. So Mary was really, uh, instrumental in thinking about, uh, not only the liner notes, but also helping to generate ideas about who to, to would invite to this group. Uh, there are certainly many other, uh, artists that we would have liked to have had on the album. Uh, we were limited by the, the 74 minute mark of a traditional CD. So there you have it. But, um, as, as, uh, Mary reminds us, there are other Filipino artists that I think should be well represented, um, and, and documented because this, this represents just one part of, um, a Filipino American musical tradition, uh, or Filipino music in the diasporas. Um, when you think about it, really, there aren't, there aren't any genres that Filipinos don't get involved in. Uh, when you're talking about Sugar Pie DeSanto and the blues or, uh, Latin Boogaloo with, uh, Joe Batan or, uh, third wave and jazz vocal music. I mean, there's just every genre you can think of, um, uh, Filipino people have been innovating and, uh, have been, uh, providing, uh, outstanding contributions to, uh, to global musical heritage. Yeah, I'm really glad yeah. you mentioned that, Theo, because uh, there were a lot of other artists that we just weren't able to include on that second album. So I just want to emphasize that, you know, um, this uh, double CD album is just sort of the beginning of the journey into discovering not only um, indigenous uh, traditions, musical traditions from the Philippines, but also Filipino-American artists. There were um, many that we couldn't, uh, unfortunately, couldn't include um, on this CD. And I just encourage people to go out there um, and look for those um, really unique voices in uh, Filipino-American music. Um, the first album, um, as I said, features uh, traditional Kulintong music, but the members of Danny Kalanduyan's group, Palabunian Kulintong Ensemble, were mostly Filipino Americans. So he really taught them, um, and they were such dedicated students to him, um, and also friends uh, that supported him as well. So it was this group that is featured on the first part. 
But again, you know, there's um, transnational connections between Filipino America and the Philippines. Uh, most of the performers on on his uh, that first album of traditional music were Filipino Americans from the Bay Area. So they are wonderful artists in their own right, and uh, they themselves have. Um, taken Kulintang tradition into their own musical work. So um, thank you, Theo, for saying that there were artists we couldn't include. However, um, we really encourage people to go out there and discover new artists. Our album is really kind of just the beginning of, of this journey into learning more about um, American Kulintang, as they call it sometimes. Uh, thank you. Well uh, just so folks know, uh, as Theo mentioned, Joe Patan is one, one of the, the musicians that he uh, discussed. Theo actually wrote a piece about him in our past issue of CUNY Forum, uh, which yeah. is uh, available for sale, for sale online if you read it. And just so you know, Theo, uh, Joe Patan follows us on Twitter. <laughs> and I actually Fantastic. mailed him a copy of, your, uh, of that particular issue to him. Oh, great. Great. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Yep. Right. Uh, so... Theo, uh, okay, let's see. Do you yourself play an instrument like Mary does at all? <laughs> I do. I play I play music, and um, uh, I'm not a, a Kulintang player by any stretch of the imagination, which is uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to, to have Mary involved in this um, project. But I am a musician. I've worked for several years as a professional musician in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I've, I've played in different bands. Um, I think like a lot of musicians... Um, I, I play one instrument fairly well or enough at least to, to get me a job when I need it. And um, I play some other instruments not as well, and I would say even badly. So my main instrument has been primarily the piano. I started out playing the clarinet as a kid uh, because my dad loved uh, the Lawrence Welk Orchestra. That's how old I am when it was still um, on. Uh, and it was playing opposite uh, Solid Gold. So again, I'm very much dating myself. But I played clarinet for several years and I switched over to saxophone, but things really took off for me when I uh, turned to the piano. Um, and I've, um, like I said, played in different, um, played with different groups over the years. And uh, I was a, a musical director for a theater troupe in San Francisco called Tongue in a Mood when we were based at San Francisco's Bindlestiff Studio. And then for you, Mary, how did your son actually get interested in Kulintang? Did you force him or, or genuinely interested in, in the <laughs> Pretty digital? much bribed him with money. Um, but what I would do is uh, our Pakaragian group members would come and play in my living room because that's where we rehearse. And I knew I had to use reverse psychology. So I told my kids, he started when he was like, eight years old so I, he's 16 now but I would tell them don't touch those gongs do not touch them they're very expensive and and so they would like play them quietly when I wasn't looking or when I wasn't in the room and then um, I was like you know to my son hey would you like to try to learn a piece and so he did and um, he really enjoyed it and we've taken him on tour with us um, that particular clip was um, from University of Michigan, uh, where we played for the, um, the university audience, but also the Filipino American community um, in Ann Arbor. So that was a lot of fun. Um, it is quite difficult to find a teacher and learn, especially if you're not, you know, 
in San Diego or in San Francisco or in LA. Um, but we do have a couple of teachers that teach online. Dr. Bernard Ellerin uh, teaches um, online through Zoom. Another member, uh, Marlo Campos, who's um, with uh, the Malaya um, Filipino American Dance Arts teaches over Zoom. So we could definitely provide um, some uh, contact information to them. And, uh, and yeah, I really, really encourage um, the younger generation to, to give it a try. Um, it, you know, Kulintang instruments aren't, you know, everywhere in the United States. Um, so it is quite difficult to get them. But uh, if you email us at um, Ube Arte, which is our collective, um, all the different uh, groups are in a, a collective, um, we can actually help you find some. Uh, there are a couple of people I can connect people with. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to um, promote one, uh, a book you mentioned earlier that Eleanor Leapot Chesler and I um, um, <clears throat> co-edited, and it has a lot of essays, but also links to videos and um, audio of not only Cooling Tongue musicians, but also uh, a variety of music by Filipino Americans, um, particularly in California. So I'll put that in the link. It's a free ebook, yes. So you can download it for free and there's a lot of resources in there. Um, I see the, the Q&A and um, uh, someone named Ralph says, it's, it's hard to learn cooling tongue in the US. It absolutely is, I agree. Uh, there are a couple of sources. He found the one from Asian Music, uh, the journal published in 1996 that uh, Danny Kalanduyan, Usapai Kadar, and their students wrote uh, scholarly articles on Kulintang music. Um, so there are other resources in the Ube Arte downloadable PDF book. Uh, we have a huge bibliography in there uh, that you, you can find some resources on, not just Kulintang, but other, um, other types of Filipino American music um, and links to all these great videos as well. Yeah. Uh, great. Um, in terms of the budget for this particular uh, project, was it all taken on by uh, folkways or did you have to seek out other sources? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, now this was uh, uh, partially funded by the Asian Pacific American Center at the Smithsonian and then also with funds from the label itself. Um, so it was all done internally at the Smithsonian um, to to get the the uh, album produced. So no outside funding was needed. Since the album's release, what has the reception been uh, from you know, Filipino American community and uh, overall Asian American community or the music community? Yeah. Uh, well, um, we. Also, we heard from the musicians themselves. And so I, I think um, uh, the musicians that were part of the release have um, have been pleased with what they've been hearing and, and also um, uh, have, have taken um, taken to heart the, the collection as a whole, you know, to be able to be represented as a group. Um, I, I think, um, you know, for, for m many of us that knew Danny over the years, um, to be associated with him is, was always um, a, a kind of a, a great honor because you you really knew that he was he was really uh, something special in terms of his talent. 
um, he had he had a, a kind of a unique personality. He was a taskmaster and 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 very much a um, um, a, um, a a person, an old soul from the old school. Um, and you could take that however you, way you want. Um, but the, the the truth is, there really isn't someone like him around uh, in in the present. And so to be able to assemble a bunch of artists that that play in in the they play these instruments and in this in this style of music, some of whom never actually met him, uh, but others are kind of, you know, we're all part of a series of of this ongoing tradition. I, I think many of them uh, really were were quite taken to be part of the collection. So I'm I'm happy that they were pleased because it it's 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 one thing certainly for an audience to be able to learn, but I think it's it's another thing for the musicians themselves to take away uh, something positive from being included in it. I've, I've heard some really great. Uh, positive reactions from other folks that have been digging into the project. Um, and also uh, just hearing from other folks that have um, not heard about Kulintang music before. Uh, again, they might have heard about other Asian musical traditions, um, but the fact that they've not heard of this specific kind of music uh, is, has been really, um, uh, has been really great for people to, um, to dig into. So I'm, I'm glad we're helping to, to share this knowledge and, and uh, kind of build on, uh, a, a musical history that continues to expand and include Filipinos as truly global players and composers and performers. Yeah. Gary, yeah. What else have you heard? <clears throat> yeah, I think it's been a really great reception. Um, a couple of artists from around the country have uh, contacted me and um, said that they uh, have taken, um, you know, music from the CD and kind of incorporated it into their different artistic forms. There was theater, um, a, a theater artist um, that was uh, using it in her uh, performance. And, I, you know, it, it's really interesting because I think this album is not only, you know, an artistic endeavor, but is certainly an educational one as well. I was really glad and grateful that you brought me on so that I could give, uh, you know, an introduction to Kulintang music that wasn't sourced from you know, various parts of the internet. I'm not saying all those sources are wrong or inaccurate, but there are some things there that one learns when one spends 18 months studying uh, in the Philippines amongst um, actual Maguindanaoan musicians. Um, so I was really thrilled that I was able to um, write that introduction and hopefully in a way that um, that can be accessible to a larger audience. So giving it that found cultural context of where it comes from, a little bit about the music, but also emphasizing that as a living tradition, it continues to evolve so that I am not the last word on cooling tongue music, but am really just giving sort of the, you know, the, the basic cultural context and musical context where it comes from. I mentioned earlier that, you know, Danny, Guru Danny wanted to emphasize that this music is an art form. Uh, it's not just a bunch of sounds and crashes that um, accompany dance, but it really has to be learned um, as you would, you know, a Beethoven sonata or any other piece of classical music. There are um, elements to it that take a really long time to learn and to master before you can go on and improvise. In fact, you know, I only improvised in a, in a very limited way. So uh, Danny always kind of used the analogy of jazz, right? You know, certain uh, a body of work, um, 
you know, from the, the real book, uh, you know, the standard jazz tunes, and then you add your particular flair to it as an artist. And this is what Kulintang musicians, <clears throat> the ones that I've observed in Cotabato, this is what they look for. Uh, I, I almost think it's like karaoke, right? In the sense, uh, when you go to Filipino American parties, everybody knows the tunes, you know, um, you know, uh, the Whitney Houston tunes or, you know, New York, New York, the one your uncle always sings. But you're listening to the way a particular person adds their personality and flair to it, not changing it so drastically that it's unrecognizable, but taking a recognizable piece of music and showing through their um, their inflection, um, their uh, the ways they slow it down or speed it up, um, just ways that they add their own personality to a standard song. So in um, Mindanao, uh, they when they're playing cooling tongue music, it's not like one person plays the whole time, one person who's designated in the ma as a master. No, that's not how it works. People take turns. So um, you know, Lola or or um, by, um, which is a, a, a traditional Maguindanao word for woman, uh, the older women will play. Um, and then maybe, um, you know, someone who's uh, an adult or a parent who's middle aged, and then the younger teens will play and then the kids will play. And so you've got this community that's um, listening to each other and that's learning through the older people what the tradition sounded like when they were growing up and then the younger people are adding their own experience to these well-known melodies so that's um, really a communal style of playing that doesn't just feature like one person who's the best player they're really featuring the different players that are um, that are in their family group or their community to listen uh, with their hearts really to the ways that people change it up and add their own um, style to it. So uh, we try to recreate this somewhat when we perform in Pakaragian because we do rotate um, through the different players. We have to learn all of the instruments that are in the ensemble. Um, and uh, I'll play a sinulog, and then Bernard will play a faster one after me. And so we're featuring all the different people in our ensemble. And traditionally, it's not like you sit there and be quiet and listen to everybody. There's cheering going on. There's shouting going on. There's laughing going on. If somebody makes a mistake, people are tricking each other. They're going to pretend to repeat a section, but then stop suddenly. And so the cooling tongue player is suddenly starting again and gets caught um, not ending at the same time. So there's really a lot of joy in cooling tongue music. Um, and through this, it really builds this uh, tighter community that's sort of in tune to the different personalities of the group. So for me, you know, sharing Kulintang music in the United States isn't just uh, playing, playing the music so people appreciate the sound. We're really trying to also um, uh, represent what the cultural context is. Um, we'll tell our audience to cheer for their favorite player um, and stuff like that. So uh, I, I can only imagine where Filipino Americans might take 
Kolintang music in the next few decades uh, and add maybe their own cultural context to it. Um, so I'm really excited about that. Uh, do either of you know the interest of Kolintang music in New York City itself? Uh, you know, Queens having a big Filipino American population. Uh, mm -hmm. Is it something uh, they're interested in learning or uh, has there been like a, a big group here, you know, have you, you, you know, Mary, have you toured in New York City before in the past? I don't know. I, I haven't toured in New York City, but I know there is um, a group and a, a leader there that performs uh, the traditions of Mindanao. One of our um, group members in Pakaragi and Eleanor Lipod is also from the East Coast. Um, she was from New Jersey, but she met Danny in New York when um, a, a dance troupe in New York brought him there. So I know that there has um, been uh, a touch of Kulintang music there. And there, mm -hmm. um, I'm not in touch with those particular groups in New York um, because my work was focused on Southern California. Um, but, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I hear that there is like a lively scene that's starting to, to blossom there. Mm -hmm. It'd be great to see um, uh, Kulintang take um, a firmer hold in, um, in uh, New York City. Um, Filipino culture has been represented on New York stages, um, you know, as early as the 1940s and, and 50s with Bruna Cyril's uh, folk dance troupe. Um, she founded one uh, several, several decades ago and continued to be a, a pioneer in the presentation of those um, of those dances um, and not necessarily uh, of Kulintang uh, or of the southern Philippines. And, of, and then, of course, there was the big splash that was made by the Bayanihan in 1958, 1959, uh, with their uh, uh, shows at the Winter Garden Theater, uh, which really catapulted them into national and international consciousness. I mean, the New York Times and several other New York papers were writing about um, this unique form of Philippine culture, uh, uh, really for the first time. Um, so it's been, it's received attention, um, but it'd be great to see it more firmly grounded uh, with other cultural activities. And I know we have colleagues that are up in the, the Boston area that have been working on Randalia and, and other, other kinds of uh, Philippine cultural expressions. And so there's always room for more. Um, and, and again, it represents, it represents forms of sociality and knowledge transfer um, that, that is, is very, very much needed. Um, and, um, and the recognition of, of um, Tagumpay um, is is uh, is also long overdue. So, um, whatever we can do to 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 see that this knowledge uh, does get transferred, um, I think it it'll prove to be a lot of fun uh, as well as a lot of um, a lot of activity that that can communicate a lot of knowledge. I mean that that's that's the one thing with with uh, music lessons, uh, you learn quite a lot more than just uh, notes on a page um, or or simple rhythmic patterns and and melodies. You really do learn ways of life, ways of thinking ways of knowing, ways of being. Uh, and, and hopefully that translates into how we can support each other uh, in, in uh, larger forms of, of communities and cultures. So I'd, I'd like to see more of that take place in New York. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned like the, the different kinds of um, music that are found in the Philippines. Um, you know, my first book was not about Kolintang music. It was about um, military band music during American colonization. And because of my work in Kulintang, which is a totally different tradition um, amongst Muslim Filipinos, I, I actually see that there are things that bind us as Filipinos in general. Um, 
and with Tagumpay de Leon, the way he teaches Rondalia music um, using oral tradition mostly, not notes on a page, as you said, really um, connects to how Kulintang music is taught. Um, Danny, as I said, purposely didn't use notes on a page because he wanted people to like absorb the music. Um, not through the written um, written notation, but by listening to it and really incorporating it into an experience. And yeah. Tagumpay de Leon did the same thing. Um, the Philippine Constabulary Band that I wrote about did the same thing. They actually rejected uh, <clears throat> the use of uh, written score many times during their performances to the point where American audiences didn't think that Filipinos could read music. Mm. So they thought that these Filipino band musicians were just mimicking music. But in the Philippines, they, as an expression of their experience, knowledge, and masculinity, would memorize hundreds of pieces. And the way they battled each other was to be able to play hundreds of pieces without music. And these battles would last for days. Like the army would have to come in and stop them because people were falling over like from exhaustion. And so the way we think of um, what music represents um, really has to be thought about through a cultural lens. Like I said, Westerners tend to privilege music notation as the expression of the highest form of art while in the Philippines it really is playing from the heart without music that expresses different things whether it's you know masculinity knowledge or a deep knowledge of music or the ability to express yourself without a crutch on uh, written music so that's what I'm finding that uh, you know, these are just theories, of course, but that's what I'm finding that connects the different musical traditions of the Philippines. We think of all this diversity, but let's think about, you know, the really basic things that connect the music cultures together. Thank you, Mary. And as Mary mentioned, uh, her book, she did a presentation last semester for us. So if you actually go to our website under November 2021, you can find Mary's talk about her book. So I just want to thank Theo and Mary again for a wonderful presentation and for helping Ari start off our spring lecture series lineup. You can purchase their album online at the Smithsonian Folkways recording website. Uh, the link is also available on their talk page. Uh, and the double CD set is on sale for $24.98. And the download version is $19.99. And I also saw if you uh, like any particular single, uh, you can purchase those singles available as well for a smaller price. And uh, please support their work and please share Danny's music with future generations. And if your kids or yourself are interested in cooling down music, get in contact with uh, Mary and she'll hook you up with uh, resources and other teachers uh, in order to uh, lead you on your way towards uh, new musical uh, roadways. And with that, have a wonderful evening, weekend, and remember to be upstander if you see a fellow person in need. Thank you very much, uh, Theo and Mary, and good night, everyone. Thank Thanks you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you.